This morning I am reading from Acts chapter 4, the first 31 verses. It goes like this. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and Paul, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name do you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people of Israel, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. This Jesus, the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in his name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes? To listen to you or to listen to him, God? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. That was really old back then, over 40. That's just a pup. On their release... Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign God, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and, all, and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. In our day, a battle rages. It's the same battle that took place back then. 
probably 80% of the people in North America now believe there is no such thing as absolute truth. Ethics are basically what you or your group believe them to be. Morality is entirely situational now for the vast majority of people. The ascending value in our world is that if, if you believe something sincerely, then it's equally true for all people. You know, whatever you believe, if it works for you, that's true. The only absolute is that there are no absolutes. This is incredible thinking. Because what it means is that truth can be whatever you want it to be. And that's where we are. This is life and death stuff, though, by the way. From the womb all the way to the last, last breaths of human life, often the decision comes down not to God or eternal principles or even the value of a human being. It comes down to feelings. And those feelings may be fueled by situations. There may or may not be values there, but very often it just comes down to nothing more than this is what feels right. That is no way to decide life and death matters. And, of course, in our crazy world, there is now sex outside of marriage. Have you noticed that sex outside of marriage is no longer a sin anymore? Have you noticed that? Sex, anyway, anyhow. What I'm about to say, by the way, is not directly in response to the Supreme Court's new definition of marriage, although I and the Brethren in Christ disagree with that definition. What's primarily fueling my comments is not how the Supreme Court has acted on marriage, but how heterosexuals have acted on marriage. Do you know that cohabitation now is considered a standard next step in most relationships? You date, you move in, we'll see what happens. Adultery is now a major internet industry. This recent scandal would almost be humorous if it weren't so horrible. What is it, Matt, Madison Ashley or Ashley Madison? How did you know that? Anyway... <laughs> Did, did you see, I, I mean, I was watching the news, and on their webpage, their average, it says, do you want an affair? And millions of people signed up. Millions. Including some preachers. And the most humorous part about this to me, if, if there's any in it at all, is the way the media handles this. They are not outraged about people breaking their covenant and millions of families now being put at risk and, and all the, the betrayal that went on and the pain with that. Their outrage is over the hacking. Hacking is a serious problem. Is nothing sacred? This is a violation of privacy. A church person should be able to sign up for adultery without being outed. Get a lawyer. And yesterday, in the mail, Time magazine arrived at my house. And do you know what the title on the cover was? It is, the title was, quote, is monogamy over? Is monogamy over? Is two people coming together in a covenant for a lifetime, is it over? By the way, I had to really rehearse because I kept wanting to say, is monotony over? And that is just not the Please, thank you, Jesus, I didn't say that. <laughs> but what an incredible question. It is a question that would have never appeared on a cover of a magazine 50 years ago, 30 years ago, 10 years ago. You know what the answer was? The answer by Dr. David Barish, an evolutionary biologist and psychologist and author of the book, The Myth of Monogamy. His answer was, is monogamy over? His answer was, no, it's unnatural, but we should keep it for the kids' sake. 
Marriage is unnatural. It goes against evolution. It is flying in the face of nature himself itself. You know, doesn't it make you want to send your kids to a great liberal arts education at some state school with teaching like that? No wonder marriage is doing so well. I'm thinking about changing the marriage vows. You know, will you, you know, will you accept this person for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, despite the fact that this is unnatural and goes against nature? I'll, I'll do marriage vows for you if you want. But in all of that, the thing that's, that concerns me the most is the polyamorous movement. And I predict that it is a bigger threat to anything in terms of marriages in Western civilization than what any court will do. The, the polyamorous movement is, is, they, is that people want a marriage or a, some, some kind of semi-permanent commitment, but they want it with no boundaries. They want to have their cake and eat it too. They want the stability of an ongoing relationship, sharing a house, sharing chores, sharing finances, but they want to have the freedom, and it's an agreed-upon freedom, to have affairs anytime with anyone they want, both parties, no questions asked. It is growing internationally. It is growing nationally. It is growing locally in Harrisburg. There are clubs and meeting places specifically for this purpose in Harrisburg. Like I said, straight people are killing marriage. That's the real danger. It is heterosexuals redefining marriage. We live in a moral climate that is, that is reminiscent of what the Scripture said of Israel during the dark times. It said everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Brothers and sisters, that's where we're at now. Truth is up for grabs. Of course, this view says that you know, uh, all beliefs are equal. It, that really collapses if you take time to look at any of that logically because there are too many self-contradictory truths. As one philosopher put it, if all things are true, then nothing is true. Two plus two does not equal five simply because I like the number five. But we have lots of people who think like that. As Carl Menninger wrote, where has sin gone? Where has it gone? It's dropped out of our vocabularies in this world, in this secular society. Why? Why, doesn't people, why don't people sin anymore? I'll tell you why. Because according to the philosophies in the world right now, humans are inherently good. If there's any inappropriate behavior, any criminal behavior, any violence, it was because of inadequate social structures or poor potty training, if it's inappropriate at all. Therefore, nobody's really responsible for their own behavior. We are all victims. We live in a victim culture. Remember Dan White? He was the guy years and years ago that got a gun, loaded it, drove down to the mayor's office in San Francisco and murdered the mayor in cold blood. Remember how he got off? The, the, the jury, the wonderful jury in San Francisco got him off. You know why? Remember his defense? It was the world-famous Twinkie defense. I ate a Twinkie. The Twinkie made me do it. Sugar rushed through my veins and I went on a killing spree. Let me tell you something. If sugar makes you kill, we're all, there's none of us here this morning. I would be known as the Mountain Dew killer. I would, uh, it would, uh, 
Nobody's responsible for their behavior. It can't be our fault. We're not sinners. To this, God says, hogwash. We are sinful. There is none good, no, not one. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us needs a Savior. Chuck Colson, before he died, he he talked about, in his book, The Body, he said he met it with a prominent prominent leader in a southeastern city. He, He said, I'll call him Mr. Crombie. Mr. Crombie was not only a pillar in the community and an active church member, he hosted a weekly Bible study luncheon at his office. And since... Colson was in the city to speak at the governor's prayer breakfast. Mr. Abercrombie invited him to attend the study luncheon. Nineteen men in all, dressed in dark suits, conservative ties, and white shirts, filed in at the appointed hour. They filled the large conference room, which was paneled on one side in beautiful rosewood and on the other side with plate glass windows offering a breathtaking view of the city that these men you know, that in this guy's office, it, it sounds like my office. I have a breathtaking view there, except it's literally, it takes my, never mind. <laughs> Mr. Abercrombie asked Colson to speak at the luncheon and then allow time for questions. And somewhere in his talk, Colson referred to sinful human nature. I noticed, he says, at the time that a few individuals shifted uncomfortably in their leather chairs, and sure enough, it must have hit the mark, because after I finished, the first question was on sin. You don't really believe that human beings are sinners, do you? I mean, you're too sophisticated to be one of those hellfire and brimstone fellows, an older gentleman said. Intelligent people don't go for that backcountry preacher stuff. This is at a Bible study. You don't believe that Bible stuff at a Bible study, do you? Mr. Abercrombie himself looked distressed by now. Well, I don't know about that, he said, because I'm a good person, and I have been good all my life. I'd like to talk to that guy's mom. I go to church, and he says, often I get exhausted from spending all all my time doing good works. Don't we all? The room was quiet with 20 pairs of eyes on Colson. And Colson said, if you believe that, Mr. Abercrombie, and I hate to say this because you're not going to invite me back, you are, for all of your good works, further away from the kingdom of God than the people I work with in prison. Oh, snap. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I've always wanted to do that, and I can't do it. Anyway... He said, and you know why the people in prison are closer to the kingdom of God than you? Because they know they're sinners. Someone at the other end of the table started coughing. Another rattled a coffee cup. And finally the meeting broke up. But Colson had one more thing to say. He said, when you look at the human condition and you look at the inexpressible transcendence of God, we're really closer to Adolf Hitler than to Jesus Christ. That finished off the meeting. (laughs) When lunch ended, Colson was preparing to leave, and Mr. Abercrombie grabbed his arm, and he said, didn't you want to make a phone call before you left? And Colson said, I started to say it wasn't necessary, and then I realized this man wanted to get me alone. Yes, thank you, Colson said. And he led me down the corridor to an empty office. And as soon as we were inside, he said bluntly, Mr. Colson, I've been in church all my life, but I don't have what you have. 
I know, Colson replied, but you can. God is touching your heart right now. No, no, said Mr. Abercrombie. He said, he said maybe some other time. Colson pressed him, and moments later, both were on their knees. Mr. Abercrombie asked for forgiveness of his sins, sins that didn't exist 15 minutes earlier, and he turned his life over to Jesus Christ. Martin Luther was right. The ultimate proof of the sinner is that he doesn't know his own sin. By the way, what I've said there is not very seeker-friendly, but it's true. The gospel, by definition, is offensive to proud, arrogant human beings who do not know just how proud and just how arrogant they are. By the way, this confrontation with sin that I talked about, it's not just with one-on-one and on individual levels. The Bible says we fight against powers and principalities in high places. After Peter's sermon led 3,000 people, and then in the second sermon, 5,000 people to Jesus Christ, it brought out the local government in full force. Boy, when you lead 8,000 people to Jesus in your town, it gets the, the mayor's attention. It brought out the big dogs. And the Sadducees mobilized because they said, hey, we might lose control here. They, they controlled the wealth. They controlled immense power. They derived their power and wealth from collaborating with the hated Romans. They were in bed with the enemy. And therefore, they wanted peace at any price. They did not want the status quo changed in any way. Any change would threaten them and their power base and their financial security. By the way, this was, these were the same people that crucified Jesus. And why did they crucify Jesus? For being a nice guy? Oh, no, no. They crucified Jesus for going in the temple, turning over the tables, and ruining their scam. By the way, I want you to get this. The first group, the first power that came after the early church were not individuals. It wasn't church people that came, you know, the Pharisees. I mean, not, not individually. It was a corporate attack. It was the local government. It was systemic evil. Systemic evil is organized power, which if you get in its way, watch out. It's coming. Not individual power. This is what came after the church. It was the government. And so they arrested Peter and John and told them to shut up and stop preaching. And, if, and, and, and they threatened them. They said, bad things will happen if you don't shut up. But before they left, Peter and John get in their final words. And they tell the powers that be in verse 19. They say, but Peter and John replied, what is right in God's eyes? To listen to you or to listen to God? You be the judges. I like it better in other versions like the King James where it says, we will obey God rather than men. And not even the government can or will stop us. Christians must always keep government in its proper place. And here's where I'm going to go Anabaptist on you. Some of you don't know what that means. It's not anti-Baptist most of the time. It's It's something else. I'm not saying Christians do not have a duty to the government. We're called to do what is right in the sight of all men, Paul says in Romans 13. We're called to live morally and obey just laws. We're called to pay our fair share of taxes. We're called to pray for our leaders. By the way, why are we called to pray for our leaders? Not that they'd be great leaders. We're called to pray for our leaders so that they'd leave us alone and not persecute us. 
We should feel free to exercise our vote or even run for certain offices as long as our duties do not violate the marching orders from Jesus. But we can never, ever, ever, ever give the government a blank check. Ever. We can never say, we will do whatever you want, whenever you want it. That makes the government an idol. That makes the government a false god in our lives. Only one person gets a blank check in our lives, and his name is Jesus Christ. Only one person gets the final word in everything, and his name is Jesus Christ. And at some point, we will all must decide which kingdom gets our ultimate allegiance, man's or God's, the kingdoms of this world or the kingdom of our Christ, Jesus or Caesar. What that means is that there will be times when we have to say no to the government. If the government tells us like it did in this text, you cannot talk about Jesus. Shut up. Or like they're doing in China. Or like they're doing in many Muslim countries. You know what we have to say? We have to say no to the government. Even if it means breaking the law. And then do with us what you will. Why? Because we will obey God rather than men do what you will. Because our allegiance is to a higher kingdom. If my government says its policy is to say hate Jews and throw them into ovens, then it is the church's duty to say no to the state. Why? Because my allegiance is to a kingdom with higher values. We will obey God rather than men. If the government says okay, it's okay to own slaves and endorses Jim Crow segregation and racist policies, the church must rise up and say, no, your policies are immoral. We must become prophetic to the to the state. Why? Because we belong to another kingdom where there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, because what is legal and what is moral are often two different things. We better know the difference. My allegiance is to a higher kingdom with higher values. We must obey God rather than men. And does some of the laws certainly overlap in, with the Constitution and the laws and the state laws? Do, do they overlap? Yes, but not near all of them. And I am, not, I am not a hater of America. I am glad to be here. But I want to tell you something. The greatest heresy in evangelical Christianity is the blending of the kingdoms. I need to tell you this morning, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of America are not the same kingdoms. And if you blend those things, you'll end up doing anything and everything in the name of your country. And by the way, the Democrats are not God's party. Can I get an amen from the Republicans? And the Republicans are not God's party. Can I get an amen from the other half? We have more enthousi enthusiastic Democrats here than Republicans. <laughs> Our job is to not bless the world's values, but to show it a better way and a better kingdom. We are to be prophetic. We are not to be a rubber stamp to the government. We are to show them a better way, even with dealing with enemies. You know, I was, I was reading John Michael Talbot's book on St. Francis. And Francis was a man of peace during a time of war. But most amazing of all, Francis was a man who showed deep respect for Muslims at the height of the mother of all holy wars, the Crusades. Launched in 1095, the Crusades were an effort to rescue Jerusalem from the Muslims. 
But by the time the Crusades ended, and get this, ended 300 years later, the Crusades had evolved into a continent-wide series of campaigns and battles, not only against Muslims, but against pagans and heretics and other enemies of Christ that the church deemed. Official church dogmas referred to disciples of Islam as dogs and wicked people, and crusading soldiers treated them as such. One Arab chronicler described the gory aftermath of the Battle of Hattin in 1187. Here's what he described when he saw Muslims after the battle. There were severed heads, eyes gouged out, dismembered limbs, severed arms, split bones, feet hanging by a thread from legs, bodies, entire bodies cut in two, torn lips, smashed heads. And the people who did this were the supposed followers of Jesus Christ. These, this was done by those who say they follow the Prince of Peace. Into the midst of this horror and hatred walked Francis. After numerous efforts to talk to Muslim leaders had been foiled, he crossed enemy lines during the Fifth Crusade near Damietta, Egypt, risking his life in the hopes that he could have a personal audience with Malek el-Kamil, the Sultan of Babylon, whom he hoped to convert to Christianity. Not with weapons that were carnal, but with truth and with love and with the shoes of peace and the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. You know, those kind of weapons. As G.K. Chesterton put it, Francis followed this simple maxim. It is better to create Christians than to destroy Muslims. Now, I, you know, I, I, I think any thinking Christian has issues with, with Islam and its beginnings and stuff. But no matter what we think about Islam, we are called to love Muslims. We are called to love them. We're called to pray for them. We're called to treat them with kindness. The mission to convert the sultan was unsuccessful. But though he remained a committed Muslim, the, uh, uh, Malek el Kamil developed an affection for Francis. The kind of affection that reportedly led him to remark that if there were more Christians like Francis, he just might become one. Instead of all the ones trying to kill him. Listen to me. This speaks to us now. Right now, we are looking at modern terrorism. We are looking at ISIS. And I got news for you. We cannot defeat it with guns and bombs and planes and ships. Do you know that ISIS is now in 40 nations? 40? Are we going to go and bomb 40 nations? Are we going to declare war on 40 nations? And what are we going to do when it's sick? We can't go around. We can't go after a third of the nations in the world. And... By the way, you may have noticed, the more we bomb, the faster they grow. The more angry they get, the more unified they get, and the unsafer we get. You cannot bomb a religion out of existence. Our weapons are the weapons the early church used. That's what we have to have. That's what we have to use. And after the disciples, the apost John and, and, and Peter, were threatened, it says they went back to the house where the church was, and they pray. By the way, nothing helps you pray like sticking your neck out for Jesus and people telling you, I'm going to lop it off. 
That helps your prayer life immensely. And so they pray. And not once in their prayer do they ask God to minimize their personal danger or to make life easier or to restore their earlier levels of comfort. What do they pray for? They pray for more boldness, more faithfulness, for more power to proclaim the gospel in the face of such resistance. By the way, Luke really likes the word boldness. He considers it a real mark of spirit fullness that we are not scaredy cats when we are full of the Spirit of God. A person full of the Holy Spirit will be bold simply because they care more about God than they care about anything else, including their own lives. It's said about John Knox, the great Scottish preacher, he feared God so much that he never feared the face of any man. And as a result of their prayer, it says they were filled with the Holy Spirit and the place was shaken. The miracle working power of God was released again. By the way, that is how it works. You stand up for Jesus. The world comes after you. You are driven to your knees. You pray long enough. You're filled with the Spirit. You go out and proclaim the Word of God again, and it starts all over again. Hallelujah. The real question at stake in this text for every Christian, for all time, including here, is who is Lord? Is it God or is it the state? Is it Jesus or is it cultural trends? Is it Christ or my favorite addiction? Because if Jesus isn't Lord of everything, he really isn't Lord of anything, is he? Why? Because we are reserving the right to usurp his authority when we see fit or when it's convenient. We are saying, in effect, you can run this and this, but you can't have that. It means a critical underlying principle is at work. We are still the boss, allocating to Jesus what he can and he cannot have. I will say it again. If Jesus isn't Lord of everything, he really isn't Lord of anything. Brothers and sisters, we live in a world of moral chaos. More and more the choices are becoming clear for Christ's church. We can try to attract the world by being more acceptable to the world. But in the end, we will lose the world. And as a bonus, we will lose ourselves. Or we can be the radical counterculture Jesus called us to be. And I'm not saying be weird. There are too many Christians that are weird and blame it on God. You know who you are. I'm not, saying, I'm not saying being angry or hateful or judgmental. In fact, part of being countercultural is loving our enemies. It is overcoming evil with good. It is blessing those who persecute us. You know what I've learned after years of screaming? You can't scream evil out of people. I have tried. Values. You know, at some point, lines have to be drawn. Values as lovingly as possible have to be championed. The Word of God has to be followed no matter what the cost. In a secular world where anything goes, which path will we choose, brothers and sisters? Do we try to attract sinners by being like them? Or do we try to attract sinners by showing them an alternate reality? If we choose the strategy of becoming more and more secular to reach the secular then we and the world around us will be lost. 
I've watched entire denominations go through this. In, and I, I watched them gut their own spirituality in the name of being more relevant and more modern and more attractive. And millions walked out the door. The church will never be more alive, more powerful as the world, world disintegrates if we follow Christ and His Word and are led by His Spirit because the darker this world gets, the brighter we shine. That's the way it works. I'm not worried about the world getting more secular and more evil. I'm worried about the church joining it. That's the problem. If we become like the world, what do we have to offer the world? This is why I'm preaching on the Holy Spirit. This countercultural community I'm talking about runs on the Spirit as its fuel, the Spirit as its life, the Spirit as its power. Our energy comes from a different place than this world. He makes what I'm talking about possible. This is not just a rational decision. Yes, let's all be countercultural. That's not what this is about. It's about another kingdom invading this world we're talking about. It's about another power subduing the powers around us we are talking about. You know what I'm really talking about? What I'm really talking about in North America is a good old-fashioned revival. That's what we need. It's just a good old-fashioned revival. Now, I'm not talking about reviving the nation state. I'm not talking about reviving a secular culture. You have, in order to be revived, you had to be alive in the first place. Secularism, you can't rely, you know, revive something that's never been alive. And you know what kind of revival I think we need? And I've shared this before. I think we need a Wesleyan revival. I picked the Wesleyan revival because it was perhaps the greatest revival in the history of the church in Western civilization. It showed us how Christianity can and should work in a democracy. You see, one of the problems, one of the things that, that the Bible couldn't show us because it was a small group of not many influential, not many powerful, you know, it, it was people who were constantly persecuted, who lived in a complete tyranny. The Bible never got a chance to show us how the church operates in a democracy. It never showed us how to live and act when it, we could promote change without being squashed like a bug by some evil empire. Under Wesley, when that revival hit, millions were won to Jesus Christ. But it didn't stop there. Those converts were brought into a radical counterculture called the church, where they were sent to class meetings, or in our vernacular, small groups. And there, people were discipled. They were taught Christ and His ways in community. They prayed together. They supported each other as they got off alcohol, and alcoholism was rampant. Long before there was the 12 steps, there was the class meetings of Wesley. They learned how to be fathers and mothers and spouses. They learned Christian disciplines. They learned to be filled with the Spirit and walk in the Spirit. But it didn't stop there. They, after that, took on systemic evil. Wilberforce fought for 30 years to dismantle the slave trade in the British Empire, and one day he finally did it. It took the power of the Holy Spirit and his tenacity to do that. Labor laws were changed by Christians. Employers, because of Wesley and his people, they could no longer work people 16 hours a day, seven days a week. Why? Because Christians changed the labor laws. They said, this is inhumane. We care about our brothers and sisters. They changed child labor laws. They used to send child children into the, into, the, into the factories and work them to death. 
And it was Christians who said, stop that. Listen, if you have an eight-hour day, five days a week, and a weekend off, you can thank the Wesleyans and Jesus Christ. The Christians even created the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. We were there before PETA was. Amen? (laughs) Obviously a bunch of cat owners. And so much more. It's hard to get excited, I understand. <laughs> they took on injustices of all, on all kinds of fronts. Brothers and sisters, we need revival in this country, in the church. We need changed, spirit-filled, discipled people called to obedience in a radical counterculture that takes on evil not only individually but corporately in the world. And like the early church... We will make enemies. The question is, are we willing to pay the cost for that? Again, I ask you the question, who is Lord? Do we serve God or do we serve men? Do we stand for truth or do we just abdicate to the culture around us over and over and over as we slowly erode? Do we live for one kingdom or do we live for all the others? Because, brothers and sisters, you cannot be faithful and popular at the same time. That's what this text teaches us. You cannot be in favor with the world and favor with the kingdom of God. You get to choose. Which will you choose? I'd like the servers. We're going to partake of communion, and I'd like the servers to prepare to come and serve communion. And, uh, you know, the worship team uh, for music during that, you may do that, but... Before we do, I, I want to take a few moments of silence to let the Spirit search us. Let me ask you the simple question. Where is Jesus not Lord in your life? Come on. Where is He not Lord? Because if, he, if you have huge hunks of your life that He can't touch, I have news for you. Nothing else in Christianity will work. If Jesus isn't Lord, all the other promises, all the, 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 the total infilling of the Spirit, the power that comes with it, that all, all is based on one premise. Jesus is Lord. Nothing else works if that doesn't get decided. And so bow your heads and close your eyes and let the Spirit search you. What sins do you need to offer up and ask for forgiveness this day? And repentance and prayers for power you do not have. Lord Jesus, forgive us our sins. Help us 
to be honest with you and ourselves this moment. No more games, no more rationalizations. Help us, Lord, to trust in your grace at this moment. Help us, Lord Jesus, to acknowledge your lordship in all of our lives. All of them. All of it. And fill us with your spirit. Shake the room. Shake our lives. Shake the church in Western civilization, Lord. If you want to start here, that's just fine. In Jesus' name, amen. As we prepare to take communion, we're going to take communion up front. We'd like you to exit from the right-hand side, come around, take the cup, take the bread. You can sit on like some of the front row up here if you'd like to meditate with the cup and bread before you take it, or you can take it as you come through the line. There is no rush. And also, we want you to know that if this is not for just members of this church or, or brethren in Christ. If you love the Lord, you are welcome at the table of the Lord. We now invite you. To, oh, and there's one more thing. There's, we have gluten. If We have gluten-free bread. It's in little packets. That we, If you come up and, and you say, look, I need the gluten-free, it, it, it's right there for you. We now invite you to come to this table. Not because you must, but because you may. Come to testify, not that you're perfect, but that you sincerely love our Lord Jesus Christ and desire to be his true disciple. Come, not because you are strong, but because you are weak. Not because you have any claim on heaven's rewards, but because in your frailty you stand in constant need of heaven's mercy and help. Now that the supper of the Lord is spread before you, lift up your minds and hearts above all fears and cares. Let this bread and this cup be to you the witness of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit. Let us read together this. The night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave to his disciples. We follow his example. Brothers and sisters, this bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Take and eat this bread, remembering that he was born to be our Savior, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Feed on him in your heart and be thankful. The night when Jesus was betrayed, he also took the cup, blessed it, and gave it to his disciples. We do likewise. Brothers and sisters, this cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? Take this cup, remembering that he said, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it together and be thankful. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, may we catch a sense of your glory in these moments of worship. May we, Lord, be caught up to a higher vision in these moments. May we be filled with your Spirit as we commune with you in these moments. May we worship you with all of our being. 
in these moments. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.